0: All right, so we are talking about God's eternal choices. And last week we left off with, um, let's see, is this thing not going to work here? <clears throat> we left off with this question. We looked at a couple of the answers, um, a couple of ways you can answer this question, I should say. From God's holy and sovereign point of view, how does a person end up in heaven or hell? So we spent a long time talking about heaven and hell On the heels of that discussion, how does a person end up there from God's perspective? Now, I have as a title up here two main options, which isn't a great way of wording that. We'll just take main out of that. Two options, okay? We we looked at these two options. There's semi-Pelagianism, which says that humans are born slanted towards sin, but they can cooperate with God. Adam's sin is not imputed because God's grace overrides it for everybody. A more Calvinistic perspective says, humans are born completely depraved, enemies of God, and legal recipients of Adam's sin and its effects. They're unable to please God at all. All right, so the reason why I want to amend the main word up there, two main options, is because it really is a spectrum. It really is a spectrum on how these things work together. So... um, you have on one end of the spectrum, not semi-Pelagianism, but full-on Pelagianism. Pelagius was a guy who lived, this is where the name comes from, a guy named Pelagius, a guy who lived a long time ago during the time of Augustine, okay, to, uh, not 2,000 years ago, but close to it, 1,700 years ago or so. And he wanted some sort of solid answer as to why people keep on sinning. And for him, it wasn't a sufficient answer to say, well, it's the nature that's passed down to me. He thought that was a cop-out, basically. Okay? And, and so, there's no blaming Adam for sin. We each need to take full responsibility of our own sin. So, Pelagius actually taught that uh, God creates directly each human soul, and as a direct creation of God's hand, each human soul is innocent and good and pure, not inheriting any sin from Adam. Totally free neutral, like back to the garden. Everybody who comes into this world is just like Adam at the beginning, free. That was Pelagius's view. And it's almost like a, uh, a deism view. If you guys remember what deism is, it's the view that God creates the world and then goes hands off and just lets us do our thing. It's almost like that, okay? So Pelagianism is like, well, God creates you and you're neutral. Well, this is uh, heretical, okay? it. it flatly denies what the Bible teaches. And uh, it's almost like an agnostic position. Like, that's kind of what agnostics believe. It's like, well, if God's out there, I don't know. And, you know, he's just so hands-off. And, you know, we just, there's so much problem in the world, yada, yada, yada. We all have to take responsibility for our actions. It's very humanistic that way, like agnostic. Well, semi-Pelagianism doesn't uh, go as far as the name implies as Pelagianism. It came later. And it's this view that well, Adam's sin does have some effect. There's, there's an impact that Adam's sin has on us, but it's not like a total effect. Adam's sin has a, like an influence on us. So you can see how I've defined it up here, that we're, we're born slanted towards sin. Okay, so we're like given an inclination towards sin. And we can cooperate with God still. And in fact, we can please God. We can do good because we haven't been totally affected by the fall. If you're familiar with that term, total depravity, as far as sin goes, semi-Pelagians would say we're partially depraved. Okay? So we, in- we inherit something from Adam, but it's a partial effect. It's not a full effect. And this would be essentially where the Roman Catholic Church is. That's what RCC stands for, Roman Catholic Church. And uh, they can almost lean full Pelagian on this, if you, depending on who you interact with. But we're all capable of doing good. Um, in fact, some would say, well, look, we are very much affected by sin, but God in His grace has come to everybody and enabled all of us to one degree or another to be able to do good. So yes, we need God's grace, but God gave that grace to everybody, so it's not like a special thing He only gives it to some people. He has given that grace to everybody so that we can all do good. And in fact, I would say that's pretty close to a Latter-day Saint belief and how they articulate that would be the semi-Pelagian view. Okay? Now let's go on this side of the spectrum even beyond uh, calvinism you can have this view called fatalistic determinism and what this view is is saying that all i mean all of us are totally affected by adam's sin this idea of um, we're completely depraved completely totally thoroughly depraved they would agree with that enemies of god legal recipients of adam's sin they would agree with all that but then they go farther than that and they take out all human responsibility so a good example of this are the Primitive Baptists. Primitive Baptists aren't a huge group, um, but maybe you've uh, you know, heard of some of them, like uh, the Westboro Baptists would kind of lean that direction. They wouldn't be all the way there, but they would be that direction. They're kind of out of the news these days. Remember him, Fred Phelps and Westboro Baptists? They were in the news a lot for a while. But Primitive Baptists actually believe you don't, Christians don't need to evangelize. Christians don't need to go out and evangelize at all because God's the one who's just going to save people. People are so affected by sin, there's nothing you can do, there's no part that you play as a Christian in the process. If God's going to save somebody, he's going to save somebody. In fact, they say people are so chosen that faith and repentance are not required for salvation. But people who are chosen should show faith and repentance, but it's not required. I mean, that's, that's just really, really far over, Okay. Now, coming back from that is Calvinism. Now we're getting into the more, you know, medium type views. Calvinism, which is defined up here, um, you know, obviously teaches total depravity. Men are totally in sin. Enemies of God in their natural state. Legal recipients. Adam's sin has been imputed to the uh, every individual. Everybody has been conceived. All of Adam's effects of sin have been imputed and All people in their natural state are unable to please God at all. And we talked through this. If you have your uh, notes, like your history of notes here in this class, back on pages 15 and 16, we talked about this when we were talking about sin and its effects on humans. And starting at the bottom half of page 15, these statements we went through together and showed from Scripture why this is the case, Under man's new nature, in the middle of page 15, we said, man is naturally spiritually dead and is subjected to physical death. We said human beings now sin by nature. We say depravity refers to how man's heart and mind are now captive to sinful desires and rebellious motivations. Top of page 16, corruption is the pollution of man's soul with sin. We went through how man's soul is polluted by sin. It's corrupted. Incapability refers to how the natural man is absolutely uh, incapable of obeying God or pleasing God. Guilt is the reality that all are guilty of Adam's sin as evidenced by our following him. So we made some pretty Calvinistic statements there, didn't we? When it came to talking about sin and its effect on the human heart. But then there's another view that kind of pulls away from semi-Pelagianism but doesn't go all the way to Calvinism. And this is what could be called Arminianism. Uh, Again, like like Pelagianism, these are all named after guys. Calvinism named after John Calvin. Arminianism named after Jacobus Arminius. A lot of Arminians don't want the name Arminianism. It's just non-Calvinism, but it's not semi-Pelagianism. This is fun, isn't it? And You'll hear this type of view from a lot of Calvary Chapel churches. Those types of churches would end up this view. Most, the vast majority, I would say, of mega churches would teach this kind of view of how involved God is in salvation and how involved man is. It would end up here. Um, Whereas with Calvinism, the uh, confessions of faith that came about from the Reformation, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, those are going to be a Calvinistic view John MacArthur would hold a Calvinistic view, okay, but most people in our types of churches are going to just end up somewhere in between if they think about it at all, and uh, that's that's kind of where we land. I and I, in fact, I would say if you're outside of this zone, you're you're in trouble, okay, you're you're non-biblical, you're you might be heretical. Okay, so it does us good to think through these things a bit as we're doing in this study, but I wanted to give you a fuller spectrum of what's going on and how people articulate these things. Okay, thoughts or questions so far? Doing okay? No questions? Wow. Just being a rock star Sunday school teacher today, I guess. Okay. Okay. All right, well, let's keep going in our study then. I think we covered this last week too. <clears throat> there at the top of page 38, talking about election. Translated literally, it means to call out. Okay, it's a word that's used in the Bible when referring to choosing. Okay, just like we choose candidates in our elections, that's what this word is all about. It means to call out. And there are two passages that most clearly speak of God's election of individuals to salvation in Christ And uh, I reminded you last week that they're there on your page, Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, I encourage you to read through those between Sundays. And as we do that, we want to remember basic hermeneutics. We want to get to the intended meaning of the author, not what we think already, not what we feel, not what makes us, you know, have the most self-esteem. We want to know what the text says, and we want to commit to understanding that above everything else, Okay. So, with all that in mind, let's go. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And as we look at these passages, I have a lot of questions for you that are going to come up on the screen. Since uh, you all are a little hesitant today to, to ask questions and to share your thoughts, I'm going to force you with the screen. Okay? We're going to ask, ask questions and I'm going to be quiet till someone talks. But let's look at it together. Romans 8, 28 through 30. It says... And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren." And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. All right. So you don't see, at least in uh, the New American Standard that I'm reading from, and I don't think you would see this in any of your translations, you don't see the word election there. But I said this is one of the two clearest passages that talks about election. Well, even though it doesn't mention the word We're here looking at the mechanics of it, aren't we? God is revealing the mechanics behind the scene of what's going on and how people come to know the Lord. Okay, so question number one, what are the two qualifiers given for all things working together for good for some people? Who are the people that all things work together for good for? Okay, that's number one. Good, those who are called according to his purpose so there are there are two qualifications for God causing all things to work together for your good one is that you love God and the other is that you've been called by God those two things have to be going on in your life now notice that the apostle here doesn't say we know that God causes all things to work together for good for everybody not for everybody it's for those who meet those two qualifiers. Okay. Now, as you look through the whole passage, twenty-eight through thirty, what is man described as doing? What is man up to? What is he actively doing in this passage? Well, not in this. Pa- he's not actively doing that. He's passively being conformed, isn't he? Okay. God is the one, verse 29, God predestines man to be conformed passively to the image of his son. Can you find anything active in there? Yeah, so the, the only active part that man plays in all of this is loving God. But that's not disconnected from the rest of the passage, though, either, is it? It's not like, okay, man, man loves God, and then after that, this predestination stuff kicks in that's not the case because predestination by its very nature means it happens before right okay so it's not like it's that's disconnected but notice i mean look at verse 30 it says these many things predestined called justified glorified in every single one of those verbs man is passive isn't he who's doing the work god is Now, that's important to hang on to, okay? It's important to see that. And so, to illustrate what's going on in this passage, I actually want to work backwards as we look at verse 30. Okay, so look at the very end of verse 30. The end result is that there will be a glorification of some people. We know that not all people are going to go to heaven, right? We know that not all people are going to be glorified and spend eternity in the new earth enjoying God forever. That's not going to be the case. There's a, we already covered the lake of fire. There will be a lake of fire. But for some people, there will be glorification. So let's follow the logic of how Paul gets there. The end result, verse 30, is glorification. So let's work backwards. Before they're glorified, they must be justified. What does it mean to be justified? Yeah, to be made right with God, to be declared righteous by God. And how are we declared righteous by God? Yes, by believing in Jesus. It's, it's his merits, it's his righteousness that justifies us, isn't it? Nothing that you've done, all of what Jesus has done. Well, how is someone justified? Oh, I put a line there too, because glorification happens after this life. So now we're, we're going back into, I should have done the line first. We're going back into this life, okay? So glorification comes when we're resurrected. But we're going back into this current time that we're living now. How is a person justified? Well, a person has to be called. And notice it's the same people all the way through. Some people are called, therefore they're justified, therefore they're glorified. They're glorified after the resurrection, but before the resurrection, in this life, with the breath you have now, is your opportunity to be justified by God. And the ones who are justified, it says in verse 30, the ones who are justified are the ones who are called. Okay, this is sometimes called the uh, golden chain of salvation here, Romans 8, 28 through 30, because it's all linked together. To be justified, you have to be called by God. What do you think it means to be called by God? Okay. Well, yeah, and so where we're going with this is certainly to predestination, But what does the calling look like? What does that mean? Okay, a drawing. Can you think of any passage that would talk about that? Putting you on the spot, Mandy. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to think of the the reference. Can you think of anything coming to mind about God's drawing? Should I get a spotlight? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, Dean, he refers to John 10, my sheep hear my voice. And what does he say after that? And they, yeah, they come to me, they follow me. Let's go back to John 6. John 6. Uh, The apostle John in his gospel recorded quite a bit about Jesus' teaching on this. John chapter 6. And Mandy, you were spot on when you're talking about being drawn by the Father. That's definitely tied in here with this calling. John 6, 43, and 44. Mandy, you want to read those for us? John 6, 43, and 44. Are you in John 6? Oh, well, hey, that's a good one, too. (laughs) Yes. All right, so there's that drawing language. What is a prerequisite for coming to Christ, according to that passage? That's it. The Father has to draw an individual. So what was a prerequisite in your life? If you're here today as someone who has faith in Jesus, what happened in your life before you had faith in Jesus? According to this verse. You were drawn by the Father. And again, it's a passive thing. The the Father does the drawing. He's the one who draws you to the Son. And this calling, God calls, which results in justification. That's God being active. You're being called by the Father. You're not calling yourself. But God has called you, drawn you, brought you to the Son. Joel. We're going to get there. At the very bottom of the sheet, the very bottom of 38, we're going to ask that question. That is a very natural question. But first, we want to understand this. We want to make sure we get, we get this down, okay? So you have some people who will be glorified post-resurrection. In this life, those same people are justified. Before that, those people are called by God. And well, now we're going to go back into eternity past, and we find out that those people were predestined by God. So again, verse 30 of Romans chapter 8, working backwards, those who will be glorified, those are the same ones in this life who are justified by God. They were justified because they were called by God and they were called by God because they were... Good, predestined by God. Okay, and so to kind of visualize this a bit fuller here, Some people out of the whole, of all people who were going to exist, some people were predestined by God in eternity past to be called or drawn by God, to be justified by God by having faith in Jesus Christ as they were drawn to the Son by the Father. That one day, post-resurrection, they would be glorified with God and enjoy Him forever in the new earth. See the chain here? See how it's connected in Romans 8.30? It's God's work, God being active, man being passive, some people out of the whole, chosen by God for these things. Thoughts, questions, snarks, rebukes, admonishment. <laughs> yes, Joanna. Mm. So are you thinking of like um, in 2 Corinthians 4, where it says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving? Yeah. Yes, um, and, and that's an interesting thing because um, now you throw Satan into the mix. It's complicated enough when we're just thinking of how does God do this with us and we're sinners, right? How does that all work? And then he throws Satan into the mix who, according to Paul, is actively blinding the unbelievers. Did, did, in, our, in our natural state, did we need Satan's blinding of us on top of our already sinful condition? No, we didn't. But you got that going on too, and so it's like, okay, what, what exactly is going on? But, but clearly at some point in there, to answer your question, yes, God overpowers the forces of evil in our lives in order for us to be saved. That, that, that's what happens, Where, which is no match for God. It's not like you know, he has to suit up for battle and it becomes this you know, difficult thing for him. But, but yes, any kind of uh, demonic oppression that was keeping us from faith in Christ, any type of blinding by Satan that would have been keeping us from having faith in Christ, he overcomes that. Yeah. Yes, Connie. Yes. So that's really important to note. The same people go all the way through. So even if you take out the middle for a thought exercise, okay, just take out the middle too, these people who were predestined in eternity past are the same people who are going to be glorified. Now, this is obviously extremely important. This is the life we're living right now. This is what we experience here and now. But we're getting a peek into the past and finding out the reason this happened to us is because of this. And we're getting a peek into the future and saying the reason why this is going to happen is ultimately because of this too. Because God predestined certain individuals in eternity past to be glorified they're the same ones who will be called and justified in this life. There's no one that God predestines to salvation who will fall short of salvation. It's the same people all the way through. So here's my uh, my really complicated formula for the why questions. Okay? Anytime you got a why question, let's see if we know it yet. What am I going to say? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Because, okay, that's, here, what's the cause? Because God is most glorified that way. So, this applies to all sorts of stuff. Why did I get cancer? Why did God allow me to have cancer? I don't have cancer that I know of, but you know what I mean? Because God is most glorified in that Why did God allow this bad thing to happen? Because God is most glorified in that. Why did God save me? How about that question? Not why didn't he save everybody? Why did he save me? Because God is most glorified in that. Any why question you have, if we believe in a sovereign, holy God, nothing falls outside of his control. He's got a reason for all these things. And his ultimate reason for all things is to glorify himself. And if he was like us, that would be so egocentric and sinful. But because he's the eternal, triune, creator God, it's the best thing that he would glorify himself and use us as vessels to bring him glory. Joe, did you have a thought in there? (laughs) Well, yeah, so that's interesting, right? So you've got eternity past... And then you're born at some time in your life. And then, what, for some of us, way late in life, this calling happens. You'll have decades of sinful rebellion before God draws you to the Son. Well, it's most glorified that way. Think of all the ways, think of all the ways someone with a testimony like yours can help someone else. Someone who's been there through that stuff. Think of the way that someone with a testimony like my children, saved at a young age, can help other people who have grown up in the faith. God, I mean, the, the body of Christ is not uniform. We don't, he, he doesn't call all those he predestines at age five. And aren't we thankful for that? Yeah. Because we come together as a diverse group of people and he meets needs. That's what he does. Brandon. That's a good question. Um, this is squarely in eternity past, this predestination. It's a choice that God has made in eternity past. I wouldn't even be comfortable saying it happened at a moment in time before he created the, the earth. I think it's just bound up in his eternal will, his eternal decree, um, which extends beyond time, which is really hard for us to wrap our minds around. But, but it has effects in our life. That's what leads to the calling. Okay. Rex? Rex? Oh, yeah, we'll get there. We're, we're coming up on that. Yes, we're coming up on the, uh, the foreknowing stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah, so Rex brings up a, a new term. You can write this down. Effectual calling. And it starts with an E. Effectual calling. Okay? Um, effectual. Effectual. Now, the reason why some people will refer to the calling here as the effectual calling is because they're going to lean more on the Calvinistic side of things rather than this direction, and they're saying, for good reason, look, all those who are called by God will be justified by God. That's the effect of his calling. His calling is effectual, meaning it produces a result. It produces an effect. And it says in Scripture the effect is going to be just justification. They're going to be justified. Whereas over on this side, leaning more this way, the view is, well, God calls everybody. He's drawing everybody to himself, but not all people believe. And so his calling isn't always effectual. The effect is dependent on man's free will. Whereas Romans 8, through 30 says... No, the calling leads right into justification. I'm kind of showing my hand here about where I lean on all this, aren't I? But the calling leads to justification. That's what it's teaching there in that passage. Okay, Because there aren't some people who are called who don't get justified. No, notice the circle doesn't get smaller as it goes on. That would be the view of somebody who leans more on this side of the scale, is that God has this big desire for everybody, but it's up to man, and so he calls everybody, but then not everybody will be justified. So the circle gets smaller at that point. Romans doesn't pres- Romans eight twenty eight through thirty just doesn't present that. It presents the same people all the way through, experiencing all of that. Okay. God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's in First uh, Timothy two four, I think. There's 2 Peter 3, nine that God is not slack, as some count slackness, or slow, as some count slowness, but he desires that all men everywhere repent. Okay, So there are a couple different ways of explaining that, but not today. All right? So we're going to hone in on these passages, and that's very important to bring up, but probably next week we'll get into that. Yeah, Dean. Yes. Yeah. Um, the mystery of apostasy is what you could call that. Those who are among us and seem to be believers. And then next thing you know, they're gone and you're looking at their Facebook and you're saying, whoa, you're a Satanist or something now. You know, what's going on? Um, Apostasy does not fall outside of God's control. Uh, Sadly, it is a reality of this life. It's something that was happening even in the early church. You've got the Apostle John saying they went out from us because they weren't really of us, meaning They were with us, and they appeared to be with us, but their leaving us showed who they really were. Um, You have Paul talking about apostasy. Hebrews 6 talks about apostasy. It's a reality. It's a very sad reality. Um, But, I mean, that's kind of the most extreme version of that. But even before that, there's like all these experiences we have with people where it seems like they're showing a little bit of faith, maybe, or showing interest, and then they lose interest, maybe, in the gospel. Yeah, right. Um, you think about that amazing parable of the soils in Matthew 13, um, where you've got the good soil and three not good soils. And the, that first soil, it's just on the stony path and the bird, the devil, takes away the word. But you've got those two middle soils and something springs up for a bit. A plant springs up and then it dies. And one of the things to remember in all of that is the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Just because someone is not predestined by God, that does not mean God is totally hands-off in that person's life. God is sovereign over that person, too. Okay, so, um, but their will isn't a free, they're not a free agent, as some people would make them out to be, And that God is just passively knocking at the door and waiting for them. Um, if God's going to save somebody, he's going to save somebody. That's what we're learning in this passage, okay, Rex? Yes, I know who you're talking about now. Um, yeah, I can't think of his name either. Um, yeah, the guy who got the award for the most uh, most used of God award or whatever over Billy Graham, and then he fell away from the faith after that. Yeah, but then at the end of the life, at the end of his life, came back around. It seemed like maybe. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, I just listened to it on a podcast earlier this week, and I forgot it already. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, apostasy is um, just a tragic reality. It's very sad to see. But what we're learning here is that, again, if God's going to save somebody, he's going to save somebody. All people who have been predestined will be glorified. Okay? Anything else before I move to the next thing? All right, um, more thoughts or questions here that I have for you. It says that the predestined ones were also foreknown. Oh, yeah, Dean asked about this. Uh, this word, prognosko in the Greek, it's where we get our word prognosis in English, is its most ba- in its most basic sense, that word means to know beforehand. So here's the question in verse 29, where Paul uses the word foreknew. What is the object of God's foreknowledge in verse 29? That's the object of his foreknowledge. Verse 29. What what is it saying that God foreknew? Very good. All right. So yeah, not rocket science. People. Notice it says right there, the start of verse 29, for those whom God foreknew. Now this is really important because there will be, again, people who lean more this side of the spectrum, okay, will say that, God knew what people would do beforehand, and based on what he knew of their free actions, he predestined in accordance with that. It seems like a good philosophical way to try to strike a balance between God's sovereignty and human free freedom, basically. That God looked down the corridor of time, so to speak, he saw what Evelyn would do, and because he knew what you would do, then he predestined you according to what he knew you would do. So it's like a way of kind of skirting God's uh, interference in your life in ways that maybe freak us out a little bit. But that's just not what this text says, is it? The text says that God foreknew Evelyn for those whom he foreknew, not the things that Evelyn would do, but Evelyn herself he foreknew. Rex himself he foreknew. Those who have been justified on the basis of faith, God foreknew them, the individual people. Now, of course, he foreknew the things they were, they were going to do also. I mean, God knows all things. But the thrust of this text as it regards salvation is that God knew the individuals. He had a, a knowledge of the individual. Now, before we go too far down that road, we need to look at a couple other texts and define what we mean by that. Could someone get Jeremiah 1.5 for us? Who can get Jeremiah 1.5? Okay, Dean, and then Galatians 1.15. Who's got that? Galatians 1, 15. Mandy again. Thank you. So, these are two more passages where we see God's foreknowing of an individual at play. Really, really important that we understand what this means here in Utah, because if you grew up with an LDS background, this idea of what's going on before we came to earth, as it's phrased by that church, uh, that can really, you know, get you confused and turned around. So let's look at what these passages say. Jeremiah 1.5, Dean. God telling Jeremiah, before he was even formed in the womb, God knew him. Before he was born, he was set apart to be a prophet. In Galatians 1.15, Mandy. Yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, there's, we can, you can tell we're in the middle of a sentence there. Uh, God, that's the Apostle Paul saying... What did he say there about being set apart, Mandy? Okay. So Paul says that God set him apart before he was born. Foreknowledge. Okay. Notice that, you know, God didn't make everybody a prophet. He made Jeremiah a prophet. God didn't make everybody an apostle. He made Paul an apostle. God didn't make everybody a Christian. Only certain people are Christians, those whom God foreknew, who were set apart for his purposes. So each of these passages, Romans 8 and then Jeremiah and Galatians here, each of the three passages speak of God knowing the individual before their earthly existence. Do any of them speak of the individual knowing God beforehand? No. None of them speak of a two-way thing. None of them speak of, like in Jeremiah, it doesn't say and Jeremiah, I I chose you and you chose me, and we had a conversation, and this is what it said, or anything like that. Uh, Same with Paul. It just doesn't say that. It's a one-way deal. Even when you go to Romans 8, those who were predestined doesn't say anything about them having a conscious existence in eternity past with God. However, God who knows all things, God who knows exactly who's going to exist, God who knows every single soul, he is the one in his sovereignty who is choosing people for certain purposes, setting people apart for certain purposes. And so he uses this language of, before you were even born, I knew you. Okay? You see the difference between that and Mormon pre-existence stuff? Okay? There's a big difference. We don't believe, because the Bible doesn't teach, that we had a pre-existence and we were hanging out together and hanging out with God and then we were sent here. We don't believe that. Your existence began here on earth. However, in God's grand scheme of its eternal purposes for his glory, he knew you, Christian. He knew you and predestined you, and you were set apart to believe in Jesus Christ, to be called and justified and glorified. God's work, okay? that making sense? Any thoughts or questions there at that juncture? Evelyn? Yeah. Mm. Yes. Correct, yeah. Yes. Yeah, think of the difference between a, a person coming to Christ in a uh, Muslim context in Africa with a missionary who's there, maybe uh, someone, an African who's been saved, and he's explaining the gospel in that context to that person. Compare that to, you know, us raising our kids here and talk, explaining the gospel to our kids here. You know, my, my children know very little of Islam, right? <laughs> and, uh, and it's just different. Or somebody who didn't grow up in church at all and stumbled across, in, that, in his or her adulthood, stumbled across some sort of invitation to some service and shows up. It's, it's all different, and it's amazing how God does that. Joe? Hmm. Well, what do you think the answer to that question is? <laughs> well, wouldn't you say that God's not only involved in the, um, in the drawing of you, but he's also involved in causing that faith in you? He's the one who's involved in giving faith, even as a gift? Like all the way through in salvation, that God's even involved in causing you to profess Jesus Christ? Well, that's... But it's all of grace, isn't it? It's all of grace. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah, Joe, he's bringing you back to this word, that the calling of God, the drawing of God was effectual. Okay. He, he doesn't draw and then leave you with your smarts to figure it out. His, his drawing, his calling has that effect. It's pretty amazing. Yes. 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 Yep, and fruit. You start to bear fruit in your life. It's just an amazing work of God. Sarah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, Jeremiah and Paul are two in two very different situations, okay? Both Jewish. I guess we can start there as a similarity, okay? Um, however, uh, Jeremiah was living in a time... When Israel was in bad shape, it was before Jesus had come, we're 500 years before Jesus. And uh, he was called by God to send a message to Israel of their need of repentance and their hope of future restoration. Then you have Paul, who was a Jew by birth, a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, all that stuff. And he persecuted Christians. And then God saved him and made him a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. But beyond that, he was given this title of apostle with those who were the original disciples of Jesus, save Judas, right? Not Judas anymore. Matthias replaced Judas. But Paul gets called, and he's not just any, you know, lay lay person in the church, I guess you could say. He was given the title of apostle, meaning he had authority then at that point because of God's specific work in him and through him to instruct the church. So that's why we have letters from Paul and not letters from Barnabas, for example. Um, Barnabas was a missionary companion of Paul, but he wasn't an apostle like Paul was. Okay? So both, uh, again, were Jewish by ethnicity, but both also had authority to speak from God. Both had authority to instruct God's people, but they were living at two very different times. And in the New Testament, uh, those who had the authority to instruct the church were called apostles, and there were only 13 of them. Okay? Good question. Other thoughts or questions? Connie. The answer is no. They don't. So, yeah, passages like Romans 8, and again, going back to, um, you know, I, I do think this is a fair way of representing that passage. Um, there's there's no, like, second dot that shows up here. It's, it's the same people all the way through. And in Ephesians 1, it'll get that specific again, um, where we look at, I don't know, 13 verses or 12 verses, whatever it is, where if you're going to be glorified, that means you have been predestined. There's there's no other group. Okay, Um, let's wrap it up with a couple thoughts here. In summary, you've got a blank on your sheet to fill in here. Man is passive in all pre-earthly activity, including election and predestination. Now, As I just said, man didn't, you didn't exist in the pre-earthly activity of God. Um, That's something we have to add for our context. In most contexts, you don't even need to explain that. But in Utah, that's one of those beliefs a lot of people have, so you have to clarify that. But we can say, you know, man is passive in all the activity of God. And it it touches on that view, too, that I explained about God looking down the corridor of time, seeing what you would do, and then predestining according to your will, essentially, God yields his will. Wheel? Uh, Sound like uh, I'm from Arkansas. God uh, yields his will uh, to yours. Like, you know, he sees what Rex is going to do, therefore he predestines that to happen. Well, that means Rex's will trumps God's will, doesn't it? Okay, that's not what God does. That's that's not what we're seeing. Man is passive, not active. And a group of individuals from the whole is chosen, meaning they are predestined to. They are justified, they are glorified. Called in there too, I didn't list it, but a group of individuals from the whole is chosen. Okay? Why would God choose those particular individuals? Why would he foreknow only them? Okay, good. The answer's still on the board. Okay, good. Okay. Now, the other passage we must study to understand is Ephesians 1. Let's just go ahead and turn there, and I'll read it today, and then we'll get into it next week. This passage is absolutely critical to our thinking regarding God's predestination. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll start with verse 1 and read down through verse 14. Now, I mentioned this last week, and... Uh, I think it's a pretty cool thing about this passage that there is no a context before this passage. You know, some people with like Romans 8, uh, that section say, well, you got to look at the context and try to, you know, maneuver that way and say, basically try to get to a point where it doesn't say what it says because context, which just isn't, the, it isn't true. In Ephesians 1, there's nothing that precedes this. We're jumping into the very beginning of the letter. This is it. This is your context, okay? Ephesians 1.1. 1, 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Well, that pretty well sums it up, doesn't it? So we'll examine that passage in more detail next week. But I would uh, leave you with this thought this week. As I know this, you know, for some of you, will generate mixed emotions or mixed reactions with all this stuff. As we are seeing... In Scripture, hopefully you're seeing what I'm seeing and you're leaning more this direction and just seeing God's sovereignty in this, seeing that this is God's work in your life. All credit goes to God for all of this. This should make you very, very humble. Some people in their minds will go, well, if God predestined some, that means we get to like wear a badge, wear a sash, and say, we are the predestined. He predestined you because you're on your own worthless. That's what Scripture says. Romans chapter 3, they've all become worthless. God predestined you. He's the one who gave you value. He's the one who showed you grace. This is a very, very humbling thing that God would choose anybody. So God's choosing of you should be the most humbling reality that you know of, okay? Should not make you proud. If it makes you proud, you don't understand it yet. And you might as well be a Pelagian. Okay? All right. I'll pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your work. We thank you that you have, in your loving kindness, in your sovereign grace, chosen to bestow on us all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, that we have found them in Christ, that we have been. United to you, our Maker in Christ, God, we ask that you would cause us to have this reality take hold of our hearts, that we would live humbly for you by faith day by day, that we would honor you as you are to be honored, that we would grow in our faith, and that you would be glorified and honored in our lives as we seek to please you in all things. Help us today as we go to the next service, as we look more into your word. And as we see more of what you're doing in the hearts of your people and even in the world. God, we love you and thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.